Welcome to Mindset in Motion, a podcast discussing the ideas, pathways, and innovation shaping the future of higher education. I'm your host, Bill Heinrich. This podcast is hosted by Orbis, supporting higher education and data-driven experiential learning. Mindset in Motion, the podcast that discusses current issues and topics in higher education. I'd like to welcome my guest today, Dr. Robbie Rattan from Michigan State University. Welcome, Robbie. Thanks for joining. Thanks so much, Bill. It's great to be here with you. And uh, thank you for letting me double post this on SpartyCast. Yeah. So we're simulcasting on your podcast, which is SpartyCast, MSU, Michigan State University. And this is episode 39, I think. And you used to be at MSU. So all the more reason for double Sparty simulcasting. Yeah, just for your SpartyCast listeners, I'm a two-time alum of the College of Education at Michigan State University. So great to be here with you, too. So our topic today, Ravi, is the metaverse and experiential learning in the metaverse in particular. We want to talk about all that it entails. And I'm really glad to have you on. This is your research area, if I understand. So maybe you can start by telling us how your career took you to, you know, doing research and learning in the metaverse. That's a great question. And now in hindsight, I have the simplest answer, but I didn't really connect these dots until the last few months. I was inspired by Snow Crash, the Neil Stevenson novel that coined the term metaverse in the year 2005. The novel was already a decade old by then, but my advisor, uh, Jeremy Balenson, who ran a virtual reality laboratory uh, where I was doing, or he was my mentor, Cliff Ness was my advisor, but um, but I was working in Jeremy's lab and he told me to read this book and I was like, wow, this concept is amazing. I mean, it wasn't like the metaverse as a term, but it was the metaverse as a concept that I was just so enthralled by. And I read numerous research papers as well as kind of more popular oriented articles about the potential for these technologies to change our lives socially and psychologically. And So I thought, wow, I want to start studying this realm. I didn't really know what that meant. So from there, I kind of meandered into avatars and video games and uh, virtual worlds and online games, and then kind of back to virtual reality through my graduate studies and uh, early junior scholarship as a professor. Um, But I guess it it all circles around the metaverse, right? Understanding how people interact in these mediated spaces socially and how they're affected and can learn. Um, And in particular, I focused on educational outcomes of media technologies and avatars. Um, So now that we have this big concept that everybody knows, this metaverse concept. I can say I've been a metaverse researcher all along, though I didn't really know it until recently. I wouldn't have called myself that until recently. And that's totally fair. I think we, I think it's normal and natural to come to these realizations later in our, uh, later in our experience. I'm glad to hear because experiential learning really relies on that kind of reflection to connect dots from the past. So that's a meta connection right there. Right. You've, you've illustrated one of the key tenets of experiential learning without even trying. So thank you. I don't even have to do the work, but tell us more like what is the metaverse or maybe what is it and what isn't it for those like me who I'm, I'm not seeped in avatars, gaming, or 
otherwise online worlds. Like that's not my sure. reality just yet. Yeah, absolutely. So in many ways, it's not really here yet, but the pieces of it are being built. And in and in some ways, we can feel like we're experiencing the metaverse. So, so what is the metaverse? The metaverse, most simply, is an interoperable network of virtual immersive spaces that you can navigate through some sort of browser software and hardware but the software side is like a web browser that you access through the hardware side a virtual reality headset or some other technology that kind of makes you feel immersed in that space and so it's the next level of the internet we can already jump in a web browser and cruise around to different websites and watch videos and socialize with people right but um, the metaverse the idea of the metaverse at least from the user perspective is the sense of presence of being there in a physical space the uh the illusion that you're not really uh in a virtual space anymore you're actually like there in, in a in something that feels real that you're actually there with someone else i mean i feel like i'm here with you right now bill and i'm very happy to be i feel like our social presence is high but when you're surrounded by the world, as you move, the world redraws and the sounds change in three-dimensional manners, that really makes you feel like you're there. And, and if I can hand you an object and you can hand it back to me and we can write on a pad together or collaborate in this space, play a game, play catch, right? That increases our sense of social presence as well. So, um, so it's this next level of immersion and kind of psychological connection to the, the place and the people in the internet. But another aspect of the metaverse as the next level of the internet focuses really on that interoperable aspect. So I can move from one virtual space to another. And this is the part that's a, that's a bit further out there, um, but it is definitely part of the vision. In order to move from one website to another, it, you know, it makes sense. I just type in the thing or I click the link and I, and I move between them. But still, I need to log in separately. And when I'm inside of this one ecosystem, maybe the, the Facebook meta e ecosystem or the Microsoft ecosystem, the Google ecosystem, the Apple ecosystem, they're all kind of distinct. People use the term walled gardens right? You're kind of stuck using your Apple stuff within the Apple world. Well, in order for the metaverse to really feel like a cohesive kind of um, interoperable, tr uh, transnavigable space, you have to be able to take your stuff with you. I have to be the same avatar. I can't be the same avatar right now when I play a game of Fortnite as when I play uh, a game of PUBG or Minecraft or Animal Crossing, right? But in this future metaverse vision, you will be able to. But how, right? How do you do that? You, you can't get these companies to all work together. But like with any major new media technology, as we've seen since the dawn of mass media, right? From from the printing press all the way, uh, you know, through radio, internet, um, etc. Fundamentally, it comes down to standards of interoperation. So people are promoting blockchain technologies as a standard, essentially, for owning goods. You've probably heard of NFTs, right? I can buy a digital art piece or artifact. Well, an NFT is basically just a unique digital object that you can prove ownership over through, through computer code. 
so you don't need you don't need a lawyer to say oh yeah that you you own that or you don't you don't need a deed i mean it's like a deed is it's like a digital deed but the code is what enacts that so then i can use that code that standard for interoperability to take my same avatar and my virtual swords and grenades and books and experiences virtual offices and simulations of a factory floor and an office place or whatever it is. I can I can own that stuff. Or maybe, maybe even if I don't own it uniquely, I can at least prove ownership over this copy of it. Other people might have the same copy, but in the same way as I own, uh, I own a music piece that I buy from some uh, digital music distribution platform, I can own that music piece and I can bring it with me across this metaverse, but now it's 3D objects also, and that makes it makes the world feel a little bit smaller, for, for better or that's, worse. Yeah, that's really cool. So let me make sure I understand a couple big concepts you brought up. So one is there's interoperable technical standards that let us literally move through different worlds, platforms, ecosystems. But then there's this, something you said earlier was there's this social and psychological presence, which mm -hmm. I find to be, you know, also really key. Because I think I understand the technical stuff really well. I work for a software company, like that makes a lot of sense. That being said, like the social and psychological presence really seems to make, you know, the topic today, like learning in the metaverse, mm -hmm. something that's additionally possible, additionally realistic for now and our near future is that fair absolutely and and it's the the yin and the yang of this technology right like you need the you need the technological infrastructure to make the social side work and you need that demand that um kind of experience that uh compelling experience of the social and psychological to create the resources to facilitate the technology. But if you, we can, yeah, let's go into the social and psychological because that's my, actually, that's my area. Good. So what are some of the, let's just talk about the experiences. Like what are some of the really unique experiences that are happening now in, you know, the, or maybe even a metaverse. It sounds like there's more than one, but. There's the metaverse okay, and it's not is... here yet. And the reason it's not here yet is because it's not interoperable yet. People are working to make it interoperable. And as we get to that state of the metaverse, the individual virtual worlds are being developed. And those are the experiences we can have now, but none of them are a meta. I mean, some people might, might say that. I would argue that that's wrong. There aren't multiple internets. Uh, in the early Got days, it. we did have like distributed networks of computers that weren't connected to the internet, but they weren't really internets. Maybe they were, I mean, there were mini nets. <laughs> I don't know, whatever. You, yeah. And at the end of the day, <laughs> this is just semantics. Right. Except there's real barriers until they're not, right? Like Exactly. Yeah. We've got really cool stuff um, and we've got even cooler stuff on the way. We've got really scary, concerning stuff. We've got even scarier, more concerning stuff on the way. So, uh, okay. let's, so let's focus on the positive first. Yeah. Um, but I okay. always want to emphasize that sure. there's a balance here. So, um, so the cool stuff. We've got environments that are not just educational, uh, but they're entertaining. They're flexible. They're great for bringing people together. I can. I teach a class. I'll start with that. I teach my VR class um, in person on Zoom and in VR itself. When we started the semester, we were fully online. So I had my students putting on these headsets and meeting me in a virtual world called Engage. Engage has a free uh, option, but for $5 a month, my students and I all have this pro account, which means we can have, I think, up to 50 people in one room. We can spawn objects 
from dinosaurs to flocks of birds to video screens where I will put up a web cast essentially of their discussion questions and responses so then we will have class in vr i will respond to what they've said i will facilitate discussion we're all there together i find that it's way better than a, a video meeting zoom because they're less distracted there's no there's no other screen in the background there's no website they can't be watching youtube they're in the physical space or well the virtual space with me but they they wanted like it's boring to sit around and just sit there and listen to a conversation, right? So I let them play. In the beginning, I let them spawn objects, and we it was a kind of a test of the space. Um, and we're talking about VR and avatars and our abilities to kind of interact there. So um, so that made sense. But that got a little too distracting. So now I let them use digital pens. So we're, they're all like doing 3D pens and maybe they're writing stuff that's relevant to the conversation. Maybe they're just being funny, but they're not really distracting each other because they can all hear me. Oh, this is huge. Audio management is perhaps the biggest and kind of biggest unsung hero <laughs> of a successful virtual environment for teaching, or, for yeah. any kind of social interaction in VR. Yeah, good at audio. Absolutely. Um, and when there's lots of people and then maybe some of them are in the same room together. So there's feedback. And how do you manage like who hears what? Should the people who are standing close to me hear everything I say louder than the people who are far away? It might depend on the use case. Um, Engage has some really great tools for that. You can select whether you want 3D audio on or off. You can select kind of the radius of, um, of kind of volume. Those things are important. So I like Engage for teaching, and, and I'm using it because it was recommended by Professor Balenson, Jeremy Balenson at Stanford, who taught uh, perhaps the first large class in VR. He had 150 students. Actually, he's done it a few quarters now. So um, so that's it's a great platform. But there are other platforms, like VR Chat, very popular platform. Also, like Engage, people get together, they hang out, but it's a little more socially oriented, so you can play games in the world, and you can be all sorts of crazy, wild avatars. In Engage, it's a little more professional, it's better for class, everyone's a human, everyone, I mean, you okay. can choose your height, but you range between, <laughs> I think, four, five, and, and seven foot. I like to be seven foot. We actually had all our students, um, I was like, if you're over 5'8", make yourself minimum height, and if you're uh, under 5'8", in, in in the world make yourself maximum height so we kind of and flipped height and talked your about height. Yeah. how it changed our perspectives um yeah in vr chat though you can be a lobster or a mouse or a giant so <laughs> okay. not as good not as good for class but so lots of various experiences immersive tools getting developed so from an education standpoint you are literally delivering class mm -hmm. college level courses college courses, university courses in the yeah. VR environment. Like, give me an example. Like, what's the topic of your course? Like, what's the name of your course? Sure. I think it's called Understanding Virtual Reality. It's a okay. special topics. And we talk about the Proteus effect. That's an area of research for me that's very relevant. It's about avatars. If you use an avatar that has certain characteristics, like it's taller, or mm -hmm. more attractive, it will influence how you behave. A taller avatar yeah. leads people to negotiating more aggressively. A more attractive avatar leads people to having more social confidence. They'll stand closer to each other in the virtual environment. My favorite one is, uh, and this one's been replicated multiple times, if you use an inventor-looking avatar, you know, lab code, clipboard, 
you'll actually come up with more creative ideas in a brainstorming task. Wow. So we can like tell ourselves to be someone we're not quite yet or something like that. It's and it's subconscious. You don't really know that that is happening. And um, it's probably because subconsciously you influence your self-perception. So you associate yourself with the characteristics of the avatar, and then that influences how you imagine you should behave in the same mm -hmm. way as when we see someone else with certain characteristics, we imagine how they might behave to expect um, and anticipate their behaviors. So psychologically, it, it makes sense. It's been overall replicated over 50 times. I uh, published a meta-analysis on the phenomenon. So we talk about it in class, and that's why I had them use taller and shorter avatars. I've also had them gender jump in different contexts, making videos and, and being avatars uh, that are unlike their own identities. And we talk about the implications of that, right? Like gender jumping is, is an interesting one for the Proteus effect. We find that if you induce stereotype threat, not in my class, but in research studies, if you induce stereotype threat, which is, of course, super important in educational contexts, so gender stereotypes, right? Like women, the stereotype that women um, are not as good as men at math or, or at STEM fields. The stereotype threat literature research, hundreds of studies say it will influence performance, right? Women will perform worse when you have this kind of subtle reminder of the stereotype. Well, if you do it with an avatar, a visual avatar, stereotype threat happens with respect to the avatar's gender. So people who are using a male avatar will do better than those who are using a, a female avatar. And, and that's for men and women users, which is pretty wild, right? It illustrates, I mean, it's it illustrates that of course, we know there's a problem here. There's gender disparity, but um, but potentially avatars are a solution. So maybe, I mean, I don't think everyone should go around using a male avatar or, you know, a, a heteronormative, white, tall, attractive <laughs> male. Like we all want to be ourselves, but um, are there ways in which avatars can emphasize identity characteristics that are not stereotyped and thus buffer against stereotype threat or otherwise, you know, empower users? So that's that's a topic. And your research, your research takes place in 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 the U.S. So in like in in, in higher correct. education for the most part. So yeah, sure. so the context probably matters about what is a stereotype threat and who is good at what, depending on cultural or international spaces. And I could imagine that being different based on literally where you sit. Except that if we circle back around, where you sit may not matter as much if we're in the metaverse more, <laughs> right? Like I'm just I'm just imagining like a future where what we you know where we sit physically may just not be as important in in a future all of my students are in the front row when we're virtual oh that's really interesting so where's the boundary of like this really exciting these possibilities like what are the you mentioned some scary things data privacy is is a concern okay. um a yeah. lot of tracking family friendly uh kids and the yeah. influence of VR on kids. We know that children perceive virtual experiences, especially in VR, as being real faster than adults do to, or to a greater mm -hmm. extent than adults do. Um, so it potentially influences their view of the world, the virtual and, and yeah. the, the physical world. And so the experiences that they have in these spaces are potentially impactful in ways that we might worry about, though we also need to be cautious about moral panic, which has been 
a consistent response to every new media technology since who knows the comic book probably earlier than that i mean oh, and uh, the printing press <laughs> the printing press yeah it might be cliche yeah. even it was it plato who said that writing dulled the mind because <laughs> it reduced how much you had to remember and, and maybe it's all true but um for better or worse these are technologies we're adopting so we need to um, try to find ways to ma maximize their healthful impacts but yeah there are many concerns and i would say just just be wary and encourage research, right? Like we we know Facebook intends to do, or Meta intends to do good in the world and they've got research teams. I just got a research, a call for proposals from them yesterday, um, emphasizing that they, they don't want to surprise people, that they want to kind of find responsible ways of managing data. And so what does this mean for virtual interactions, highly realistic avatars? Uh, this is not under NDA. They they put this out publicly on their email list, and and so I think they intend to do well. But it's really hard to anticipate the problems, right? Like you can't. If if it was hard to anticipate the problems that we were having with the uh, just social uh, environments, text-based social environments, can you imagine the plethora of challenges we we're gonna have in VR, like people invading each other's personal space? So Microsoft recently announced that in AltSpace VR, which is another kind of meeting space, which I think is a little, it's a little clunky on the UI, but um, but still one that that could be useful in a business context. Uh, but they they announced that they're they're cutting some of the public social forums and they're uh, using a, a social bubbling feature uh, by default, so you you can't get close to each other um, because. Yeah that that proximity really it feels real right you walk up to someone in vr yeah. and you stick your face in their face and they're like whoa yeah and so people in the headset or using a headset then like feel that psychologically that maybe cl too close talker or I, I play this game sometimes called population one it's kind of like Fortnite, but in vr and one of the reasons i like it is it's one of the most social games uh, you, you you end up you're paired with strangers from around the world you get to meet with them so i i, I at least can tell myself and uh genie my wife that i'm doing research when i'm playing because i'm talking to people about their social experiences from like grandpas to people mm -hmm. who are active duty military um, yeah. it's just a big range and one woman there told i was wondering like is there is it is it worse here? Is there more harassment here than you might experience in other types of virtual environments? And she said she wore a haptic suit and, you know, she could feel when things touched her in the virtual world. And people would come up to her sometimes and, and, and grope her. It was unwanted oh. touching, yes, that she could physically feel. And so, I mean, yeah. that is a major problem, right? And we need settings in the same way as we need like privacy settings to know who your wall right. postings are being viewed by. We also need kind of personal safety and security settings in virtual environments. And this is not yeah. something that all the platforms are really doing yet because there's no mm -hmm. kind of public discussion about it. So we need to be talking about right. it. It's sort of like the comment sections gone really off the wall. That could be really, really harmful. And space. not to stereotype 12-year-old boys. My son just turned 12 yesterday. There are a lot of 12-year-old boys in virtual environments who have blatant disregard for social norms because that's what you do at that age not right, to justify it though but it's quite common and so yeah yeah it's a problem so yeah so where are the i mean the guardrails are going to be in settings i mean where are the human guardrails in this space where are the where are the spaces where society is to some degree and you know the the good parts of society the parts where yeah. we have mutual respect and discourse in something like a public square which i know is a contested yeah. idea but like well, where where does that show up 
And then because I want to get I want to get a little deeper into this educational layer and none yeah. of this isn't relevant by the way. I just want to like set that up for for our listeners like what what are you know where are the guardrails and then mm-hmm. you know how do we bring that into something like resembling what we understand as formal education. The guardrails yeah. are socio-technical. In the same way as different websites or forums have both kind of social norms as well as technological uh, functions that facilitate pro-social or at least uh, reduce antisocial toxic behavior. We'll have that in the metaverse. So let's use some websites as metaphors. Reddit. Yeah, it's got the upvoting, the downvoting, there are social norms, uh, but you can get some pretty toxic stuff on there as well. Wikipedia, opposite end of the spectrum. You have people who are dedicated to keeping it objective and accurate, and there are gamified mechanisms for uh, in encouraging people to facilitate positive social norms. Other, way opposite end of the spectrum, a place like 4chan you might have heard about, where it's encouraged to be toxic and the social norm is is antisocial and there's a lot of vitriol and, and, and hate speech on those platforms. So, um, so it depends by platform. And so then you need to choose your platforms carefully. Altspace, uh, Microsoft, as I just mentioned, they seem to be prioritizing a business use case, which is great. Actually, it makes a lot of sense. And you would expect that the social norms are quite strong in the business world. Um, and, and by extension, the education space, right? Like it's a very professional, professionally oriented space. I, I worry a little bit that the business oriented platforms might be too stuffy and stodgy for education. So we want these Let's go to experiential learning. Let's say I want I want to take my class to Machu Picchu. We can watch a 360 video together in one of these platforms. Engage mm-hmm. uh, supports that. I think it's uh, great in that regard. We want to learn about uh, human anatomy. We want to like kind of I don't know do surgery together, uh, put a body's uh, skeleton together. We can do that in these spaces. Um, it requires that somebody builds the simulation, kind of like somebody needs to build a video game for you to play it, right? People need to build these experiences. But from an experiential learning perspective, the possibilities are endless. You can build any kind of experience and then bring people there. And the initial cost might be large, but then the cost of distribution, the marginal cost, just like any media product, is infinitesimal, right? It's the it's the electricity to keep the the lights at the uh, web hosters on. So um, so then there's great benefit potentially. This is bringing up all kinds of questions about really philosophical layers of experiential learning. Experiential learning is about experience and reflection leading to some sort of insight, right? And then there's lots and lots of layers or variations on that theme that make the kind of experience or the kind of reflection uh, designed in a particular way. As, you know, So from an educator standpoint, we're actually trying to design these experiences to some degree. Um, at the same time, there's plenty of experiences and plenty of reflection approaches that actually that work to incorporate essentially experiences that weren't intentionally educational, right? So life experiences, other sorts of random things. And so like education abroad is an interesting example in higher ed because we say like, okay, go to another country, you know, live in a different culture and also study there, right? And so there's like three things I just said, go there, one, travel, right? Get on the road, move around, take a 15 hour flight somewhere, 
Um, there's a, you know, and then also live there, which is like its own thing, but we don't count that as part of the education. And then we say study there, which is its own, as you said, sociocultural context. Okay. All of those things though, show up in the reflection work of students in an education abroad program. Right. So it's not, we say like, yeah, here's the formal education, please. You're going to, you're going to study in, uh, Swahili in Kenya and, you know, because that's what you're signed up to do. But getting to Kenya is no joke from the U.S. or from North America or from a lot of places, right? Like living in Kenya is its own kind of cultural experience. Um, it's a great place, but it's different than North America uh, in particular, um, at least from my perspective. There's like other things that happen in an experience that are part of an educational experience that then we reflect on. So I guess I'm trying to ask you... <laughs> In the metaverse, like how do we account for, you know, we have these sort of scripted environments or, or designed environments for business or school or games or or entertainment. Like I, we can pick a category. I'm not really worried about which category, but they're designed with some sort of boundary condition. At which point, if we're going to talk about experiential education, how do we account for the cross boundary stuff, the experiences of of liminal space, of getting to a space of you know, of transitioning from wearing the VR to not wearing the VR. Like, how does that orientation account? You know, it's really nuanced so stuff. Let's let's make this um, more of a dialogue because I know this is your this is your research area. This was your dissertation and what you've yeah. worked on largely. So, um, guide me here as I as I think yeah, out sure. loud a little bit. I'll start with my class. We are largely an experiential learning class because it's about VR. Right. So by Spending time in VR and studying it, we're, we're doing it. Getting there is no joke. Had to buy everyone a headset and help them figure out how to use it. Um, and then, you know, living there is uh, part of the experience. And then we talk about it. So, so I see those right. three levels. I like that as a metaphor. Travel, though, or other types of unintended educational experiences. Let's think about video as the metaphor. Okay. So let's imagine that students have experiences and then need to unpack them, reflect on them. And so they make videos to okay. describe their experience. You know, they're taking videos at their host family's home, maybe themselves in class. You know, it's a it's a mini documentary and that kind of um, catalogs the experience and allows them to reflect. Well, I can imagine as the tools for developing virtual objects and and kind of environments become simpler to use, you could use the metaverse and virtual reality to facilitate that reflection side. And I actually, I'm glad you said that because I think it's really important if you're going to ask people to make a video, especially for a course, we're asking them to take a point of view on, on, on some sort of outcome, right? A learning outcome, or even if it's not hyper-intentional, you know, if we're asking people to like tell us a story, that's a point of view even if it's not necessarily like, what did you learn? It's like, well, tell us a story of your experience in the last month or whatever it was. Then we're, we're ultimately asking them to apply a narrative which implies, at least educationally, an epistemology and maybe even a theory, depending on how specific the assignment is. And I, you know, I just think that that's important from a learning standpoint, right? So if you're in a communications discipline or an education discipline, or, you know, you're in psychology or wherever you sit, you, you need to take a point of view at some point educationally, at least in writing a paper, right? Yeah, exactly. It becomes an assignment where the student's perspective is, is demonstrating some sort of uh, knowledge and perspective, right? So 
I'm thinking about peer review a little bit here. Is that a common method in experiential learning approaches? So let's say you go do that study abroad, you come back and you're in a class with a bunch of study abroad people, and mm-hmm. then they share their papers on their experiences and talk about them. Is that one way to, to reflect? Well, I'm not sure how frequently that design you just mentioned actually occurs, but um, in writing classes, peer review is a huge deal. Like, you know, so anytime, like for learning to be a, a writer, like in a rhetoric or a writing class, you know, being able to read and evaluate and receive and then evaluate the feedback you get is a yeah. huge deal. So, yeah, and that often happens through peer review. There's some really excellent technologies that facilitate peer, peer-to-peer feedback. Yeah, yeah. So I guess where I'm going with that, I, and I've done peer review with papers. I've done peer review with videos. I've had my students kind of develop video essays and then peer peer respond to each other's in groups. But I can imagine peer experiences in the metaverse. Uh, that's kind of what we do right now in my class. So maybe this is another way to think about it. In Engage, I, I promise I don't own stock. I did look into it because <laughs> I think it's a great company. Um, they, they've got a really cool feature, which is you can record the 3D experience. So I mean, this relates to experiential learning, yeah. possibly. Instead, like on an on a Oculus headset like this, I can record 2D. You know, you you get my perspective and can play it back on a flat screen. But in um, Engage, I can record the 3D and then I can play it for other people to come inside and see the conversation between two people and the objects in the room, kind of like um, being part of a performance. So I have my students do this. They make videos of themselves doing things in, in Engage. And then um, we either watch it on the 2D flat screen or we can you know jump in in the 3D world. And so I think maybe one aspect of the metaverse that might change experiential learning is the ability to share those experiences in a more immersive okay. way. I could I oh, could write a paper cool. about it, um, and right. that kind of gives that's you a flat. glimpse. Um, I can do a video about it, but even still, like some of it 2D. might not, you might not get the feels, the emotional kind of yeah, presence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now if I can put oh, you man, inside so- of my host family's home, I can recreate it um, and then... Yeah. Like act if I could it out. smell what they're cooking and and feel the feel the air pressure in that part of the world as it differs from where I'm from. Yeah. Right? Well, that might be the final frontier, the uh, smell of vision. Okay. The there are technologies though. Yeah, yeah. I, I heard about a thing literally called smell of vision. <laughs> like it's starting where you can taste your TV. It was. I heard about it on you know my one of my favorite radio shows. Wait, wait, don't tell me. Oh yes. Yeah. So I know it's true institutions right they're going to be different right to to support this kind of education i know you're you are a professor of professor at uh, michigan state university which is because i was there i know it's a huge physical place there's like 500 buildings and there's lots of roads and green space and and there's a river on campus like all of that physical stuff right that evolved over the last 150 plus years as to be what it is for a lot of reasons, mostly though, to put people together in in the learning space. But right, like that institution in in the in this conversation it looks radically different. What are we going to be talking about? Are we? I mean, what is what is what do institutions, especially brick and mortar campuses, going to be like? You know, in the metaverse. That 
that is an important question and one that I spent a lot of time thinking about. And I don't have an absolute answer. Um, I have some optimistic answers and some pessimistic answers. Optimistically, we can, as institutions of higher learning, dramatically scale up our service. We can lower tuition and give access to students around the world to high quality education. It's not just Zoom classes, it's in VR. So you really feel like you're there, you're getting your instructor's full attention. The potential for experiencing novel learning uh, is, is much higher. You know, you can put people inside of, inside of the molecule, inside of the, the calculus problem. You can solidify learning to a much greater extent than we yeah. can in physical spaces, depending on the class, right? You can't take notes very easily. Um, so you probably don't want to be in the type of class where you're like actively coding. But there are solutions for that, right? You can do VR um, through a platform like Immersed, which runs on your desktop computer. And then you can see your keyboard and type in your keyboard and see your computer screen. But you're in VR, so you can be there with other people doing all the other things we've talked about. So the quality and the kind of scale of education could potentially improve dramatically. The campus itself could be reserved for those experiences that require a wet lab or engineering physical things with your hands um, or sports activities, et cetera. Not esports. <laughs> but plain old sports activities. So there's okay. there's an optimistic answer. The pessimistic answer is we create a two-tier system of education where the haves get to have a physical experience and mm-hmm. the have-nots or the have-lesses are relegated to doing education from a VR headset in their corner of the low socioeconomic status neighborhood. They are forced to kind of stand in a long line of students to get professor attention, whereas the students on campus can, you know, walk right up to them, grab them on the sidewalk. Although the quality of the educational experiences is is more immersive um, and and otherwise maybe a little more innovative, the students on campus can do that too. So so there's there's this potential for um, a divide in wealth and education quality, which we know is a a vicious cycle, right? Because if you don't have access to higher education, then you're less likely to be mobile socioeconomically. So so that's my pessimistic answer. My kind of middle ground is that maybe the entire model of higher education changes. Maybe instead of, like, maybe we still encourage co-located, and actually I've thought about you, Um, When I've thought about this business model before you even contacted me for this podcast, maybe Bill could, uh, it's funny though, I hadn't thought about it till right now. Maybe Bill could help me think this one through. So imagine a world, imagine a world in which the (laughs) college campuses are, are kind of negated, like maybe you still have them, but you have satellite campuses where people live in the same space. So they get to have that physical college experience of living mm-hmm. in a dorm and being being with their friends or being with people who are at the same life stage, which I think is really important um, as, as a way to reflect on your learning and, and, and yourself. 
but then they're doing all their classes in VR. They have access to great technology in those dorms, um, but they're also living in desirable places in, in cities where they can go out and use the um, local resources and kind of be part of a community that allows them to grow as individuals away from their parents. I think universities have a great responsibility to help yeah kids transition to adulthood. And um, and so maybe there's a middle ground here that kind of avoids this bifurcation of socioeconomic mm-hmm. um, access. That's really insightful. I appreciate you diving in and, and presenting some, you know, some different, like sort of opposing views. Um, I worry about some of the same things every day. Um, and I'm just thinking of the ways, and you sort of touched on it, is how education as a vertical, like from, you know, from pre-K to post-secondary higher education starts to look different. It's not just college campuses that are going to be different. It's actually the whole educational environment. And I think we run a huge risk of recreating imbalances and inequities uh, in a VR, you know, in a, in, with the VR capabilities. Um, I still, and, and I know we're coming toward the the close of our conversation. So I want to be conscious of this, but I still, I still really worry, like as an experiential person, right? Like experiential education is a big, broad space and there's lots of versions of it. And I know we're talking about course-based stuff. Um, you know, there's a whole layer of experiential ed that's like outdoor ed. And I'm just thinking about like, one of the things I learned on in a mountaineering course that I took a long time ago, that would be hard for me to replicate and hard to imagine replicating in VR. Sorry, I'm just going to go on a tangent. It's a judgment that it took the the hard the hard judgment you know the hard decisions um, to go or turn back in the cold in the in the face of cold or adverse weather or illness on the team you know and and like the the emotional quality of that that was made in in essence philosophically made real by being there uh, all the all the environment all the haptics could be replicable but I, I just feel like in a VR situation if you're in that spot there's not a real risk of harm or death right if you make the wrong decision I worry about like that you know and maybe that's that's a that's an edge case so I don't think we should see this technology as replacing physical learning experiences at the best case we see this technology or the metaverse as replacing other mediated experiences that we already engage okay. in already too much right like we are imbalanced in our mediated lives and that's not healthy um, for many people in many cases we need to get outside we need to eat healthy foods uh, we need to have healthy social experiences um, so I, I definitely do not advocate the overuse of this technology as a replacement, especially for physical experiences. But we could use it to to supplement those physical experiences. You get back sure. from that mountaineering trip, and you kind of create a virtual um, a virtual essay that other people can can experience if they're not a, if they don't have access to the mountain. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was always a hard part too. And the same with education abroad is like, how was it? They're like. It was great, except that leaves out a lot of nuance <laughs> for the people listening. And it's also hard. It's That's pretty well documented that people go on experiences like that have a hard time talking about it because there's so much feeling and tactile and, and uh, in, you know, interesting emotional layering that goes into that. Let's come to a close here. So I just want to ask you, this is our Mindset in Motion podcast, and I know we're on SpartyCast as well. So shout out to Spartans, go green. But Robbie, how has your mindset changed as you've spent more time studying and experiencing metaverse? Oh, that's such a good question. Well, I think 
I've gotten very excited about promoting this technology as a force for good and potential good um, and increasingly wary of the potential negative consequences. I'm reading my kids the Sapiens graphic novel right now. So the notion of uh, subjective realities or interrealities is fresh in my head. And so I think in many ways, this technology will become what we choose to make of it. And if we if we go at it blindly, like I, I didn't realize how wary of um, capitalist kind of motivations I am until thinking through what some of the negative consequences are. But at the same time, my mindset has gotten even more optimistic about the potential for solving some social inequities, right? Increasing access to education, high quality education and, and technology. So yeah, I, I would say it's it's been somewhat polarizing. As you can tell, I've tried to uh, convey two sides of many of my thoughts here, um, optimistically and pessimistically. Um, it's been, a, but it's been a, a catalyst um, to in, intensifying some of my my feelings there. Dr. Robbie Rattan, thanks so much for being our guest on Mindset in Motion and for simulcasting on SpartyCast. We're really excited to have this conversation. I'm I'm intrigued. I kind of want to follow up. I hope we can do that sometime when we have another hour to spend together. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Bill Heinrich, for having me and for thinking of me in this uh, realm. And I, yeah, I do hope we get to chat again. If you have questions for me or just want to talk about your institution, connect with me at bheinrich at orbiscommunications.com or check out our website at orbiscommunications.com. <laughs>